Why don't you have a look at Exodus chapter 5 and 6? Because that's where we're going to be focusing this morning. And uh, we've been following the story of, of Moses. And I just think this is one of those stories. If you've got no interest whatsoever in Christianity or in religion even, the story of, of Moses is an amazing story. Because virtually every culture, virtually every language group, virtually every society on the face of the earth has been influenced in a positive way by the things that happened in the life of Moses, the Exodus and the things that he taught. That's uh, the fundamental influence behind uh, Judaism, behind Islam and behind Christianity and therefore behind a vast amount of what people think about uh, what's right and what's wrong, what's just and what's unjust, what's good and what's bad. So even if you've just been sort of dragged along here by someone kicking and screaming, you don't really like being with Christian or religious people generally, this has got something to say to you because it is absolutely relevant to the situations that we face today as I hope that you'll see. We're going to look at uh, chapter 5 of the book of Exodus and what's happened so far is that God's people have been in Egypt for a long time, generation after generation. It started well, it finished badly. Now they're slaves of a pharaoh who's using them for forced labor and keeping uh, Israelite people repressed because he's frightened of their abilities. He's frightened of their power. I read somewhere just this morning, I think it was the, the Telegraph online, that the fundamental thing about being Jewish in Europe is that you inspire fear and hatred. It's always been the case, and it's the case now, and it was the case then. Moses runs away. He, he kills somebody. He runs away. He's in the middle of nowhere. God appears to him and reveals himself to him through the, the fire in a bush which is burning but not being consumed. God speaks to him and commissions Moses to go back to Egypt and confront Pharaoh and demand in his name that he lets the people of Israel go. Let my people go so that they can go and worship me in the desert, was his message. And uh, Moses doesn't want to do it. So there's a negotiation, and uh, we took ourselves through that last two weeks. Joel took us through the last bit last week. And uh, basically, Moses goes. And now, well, Moses has got an assistant, Aaron, his brother. Aaron, who can speak. He's got fluid speech. Moses is in the great speaker. And he's equipped with, with some new equipment. He's got the promise that God will be with him. He's got the promise that the creator of the universe has a special relationship with him. He's, he's important to God. God wants him to know that he is alongside him all the time. He's got Aaron who can act as a spokesman and can articulate the message for him. They're confident in their special relationship with God. They've got the power of the creator of the universe behind them. Their cause is just God is on their side, and so they go, and as they're walking into the audience chamber of the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, what could possibly go wrong? Everything, as it turns out. Chapter 5, verse 1. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so they may hold a festival to me, in the wilderness, in the desert. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? That I should obey him 
and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you're stopping them from working. So it does not go badly. But Pharaoh's response, right, he's the, he's the top guy in Egypt. He is considered already to be a, a semi-god, half god, half man. When he dies, he will be God. He'll be worshipped as God. He's in charge of a system where there are dozens and dozens of little godlets all over the place who demand worshipping for this or that or the other. Or your crops won't grow. Or the mice will eat your chickens. Or, you know, your kids will get bullied at school. There's all sorts of gods for all sorts of things. And you sacrifice to them to get them on your side. Who is the Lord? I don't know the Lord. And I will not do it. It's not surprising. Because Moses lived in a world that had no idea who God really is. No idea what God thinks. No idea what God wants. And that's why it's relevant. Because we live in exactly the same sort of world. There are all kinds of people who worship all kinds of things. Most people worship themselves. Or money, or sex, or power, or some combination of those things. And so when we go to our society and say, well, God says this, their answer to us is, who is the Lord? I do not know the Lord. I will not. Why should I? It's not a surprising response. We live in a world at odds with God's purposes. And when we go to the people around us and remind them what God says, their answer inevitably is what's on the screen. I don't know him. What are you talking about? Now we need to remember this because we're a culture that's emerging from centuries of domination by Christian thinking and by Christian ethics. And that is no longer the case. The tide has run out. And the society in which we live no longer share the values that, that we talk about when we come together to worship God on a Sunday morning. So we can't expect, for example, the British government to share our values when we make our case to them. We can't expect them to do that. We may pray that they favour us, and often they do, but we can't expect them to. Why should they? They don't know the Lord. They don't know who he is. They will not do what he says. We can't expect that of a city council. We can't expect that of a management team in a hospital or a school. We can't expect that in the management team of a company or a business unless they're Christian people and, not all of them do, they carry their Christian principles through into the way that they conduct their business. So we live in a world where we ask the people around us to live like Jesus and the people around us say, I'm awfully sorry, but uh, there are so many ways to look at this, you know, and I appreciate you've got a faith. I'm not entirely convinced that's a good thing, but I, I realize you enjoy it. But don't expect me to live by the standards of your faith. And actually, that's a perfectly reasonable thing to say. Why should I go to someone 
and say, live like a Christian, think like a Christian, when they haven't got the first base, trusting in the Lord and knowing Him personally. So often Christians are demanding unreasonable things of the people around us and and the government and the culture because we're asking them to do something despite the fact they don't have the first reason to do it. They just don't know the Lord. Now that was the situation. There are parallels between Moses and Aaron and us. And the parallels continue because what happens is Pharaoh decides that this business of taking three days off and going into the desert to have a festival for the Lord, for goodness sake. What on earth is wrong with you people? You're just bone idle, aren't you, really? You want another bank holiday. This is ridiculous. It's laziness. You're keeping all these people from their work. Get back to work. And so what happens next is what we know in our society is efficiency savings. Let's look at efficiency savings in the uh, 12th century BC. That same day, this is verse 6 of Exodus 5, Pharaoh gave his order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people, you're no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota or the target. They're lazy. That's why they're crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the word harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. More work, same money. Now for the, for the Israelites, this was really quite difficult. They were, making, they were building cities. And they were building cities out of baked bricks. And to make bricks, you had to get mud into a, a mould and you mix the mud with straw because mud just falls apart when you, break, when you bake it unless it's bound together with something. In this case, it was cellulose. Now before, there were seven people on, on the job. There were three people mixing the, the mud with straw and putting it into the moulds. You understand, I'm making these numbers up. I'm just an example, all right? Um, the three people, and there were four people out collecting straw from the fields and bringing it to them. Now Pharaoh says, there's only three of you now, but you've got to collect your own straw. It's that kind of situation. And it's exactly what we mean when we talk about efficiency savings. I picked the number for a reason. There's a room in this city where medical records are kept. I shan't tell you where it is. There are three people working in that office. There are piles of medical records this high on the floor, all over the floor. There used to be seven people working in that office and the medical records were kept in cupboards in alphabetical order. You get the drift. Our government called that efficiency savings. The people in this room who know how that feels would call it something else. And so the the Israelites have put under that pressure because Moses and Aaron have gone to um, Pharaoh and confronted them with God's message. People today are under that pressure for different reasons. They're economic reasons. And I'm not going to get into that because that's not my field of speciality. But it felt the same at the point of delivery. You get the drift? It felt the same to the people at the workface 
And that's what's going on. The confrontation led to a response and the response of called efficiency savings. So Pharaoh's response is vindictive. And today our management don't beat us. Not literally. But the steep increase in mental illness in our culture is linked to the pressure that people's face, people face in the workplace. And the big companies, the big organizations, government and otherwise, are responsible for this. For different reasons, they're doing exactly what Pharaoh did. Now, some of you are beginning to think, hang on a second, David, this sounded very political. And it isn't, actually, not at all. But it is about an issue that God is concerned with. Why don't you have a look with me at Psalm 103? This is uh, on page 605 of uh, the Bibles that you've got on the seat. Psalm 103, verse 1. Uh, Christians love Psalm 103 because it's profoundly spiritual. Just let's enter into that. Verse 1. Praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. We're all living on benefits, by the way, we're Christians. Who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Just Psalm 103, celebrating the spiritual benefits that come through having a relationship with God and knowing Him personally. He forgives your sins. He brings healing to your body. He uh, pulls you out of the pit. The pit of depression, the pit of anxiety. He crowns you with love and compassion. He satisfies your desires with good things. It's all wonderful spiritual stuff. But look at verse 6. The Lord works righteousness and justice for the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. Isn't that interesting? Right in the middle of all that spiritual stuff is some very, very practical social stuff. It's about... uh, righteousness and justice in society. And the man who wrote those words says, for example, look what he did in in the life of Moses. He made known his deeds to Moses, his ways to the people of Israel. We're about to see in the story of the Exodus how God responds to injustice, whether it's caused by religious persecution, as it is in their case, or whether it's just caused by people treating people rather than as human beings than as, what's the phrase? Human resources. What an ugly way to be described. Hey, David, you're a human resource, not a person. Subtle ways our society dehumanizes people. Now, of course, Pharaoh had a reason. You find that reason back in Exodus chapter 5 in verse 8. They are lazy. But I I just noticed throughout history that that phrase, they are lazy, is usually uttered by feckless aristocrats who've never done a day's work in their lives. People like Pharaoh, for example. It's not usually laziness. These people are just being oppressed. 
They are lazy. They're just parasites. Now, back to the spiritual issue. These people are being oppressed because they want to go and worship God. They want to declare the praises of Yahweh, not the praises of these, these dummy false gods that the Egyptians worship, these nobodies, these bits of wood. They want to go and worship the real God in the desert. So it's a spiritual issue, right? And again, if you look at history, God's people are never, ever persecuted for being God's people. Look through history, no one is ever persecuted for being a Christian. We're going to execute you because you're a Christian. No, societies always find another excuse. So back in the days of the Soviet Union, Christians were imprisoned and sometimes executed because they were, quote, social parasites. Back in the days of uh, the Roman Empire, Christians weren't put into the arena because they were followers of Jesus. No, they were atheists. Huh? What do you mean? They were atheists. They wouldn't worship the emperor as God, so they obviously didn't believe anything. And so they were killed for that. In Islamic countries today, Christians are increasingly persecuted because they are apostates. Now, they were never Muslims to start with. But you were born in a Muslim country. You can't not be a Muslim. You're a Christian now, so you must have apostatized. Therefore, we can kill you. Societies always find an excuse. And the excuse here was laziness. You people, you just want a holiday. That's all. And today, in our culture, as our government and our society increasingly go secular and abandon their Christian past and say, we do not know the Lord and so we won't do things your way, we will feel the heat increasingly, not because we're Christians. No one will ever persecute you because you're a Christian. They'll do it because you're uh, anti-women or because you're anti-gay or because you won't sign up to the equality agenda or some other monstrous phrase which isn't true at all, but which can be pinned on you if it so suits the people around you. So we're in a kind of analogous position. You'll never be persecuted for being a Christian. You will be victimized for other reasons. Now, do you remember back when the... um, uh, Tony Blair's government took power and there was this song that everybody sung things can only get better well the song here is slightly different things can only get worse and the story goes like this verse 10 and the slave drivers and the overseers went out and said to the people this is what Pharaoh says so they passed on Pharaoh's instructions verse 14 and Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelite overseers they'd appointed, demanding, why haven't you met your quarter of bricks yesterday or today as before? And then the Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh, why have you treated your servants this way? It's your servants, you've given them no straw, yet we are told make bricks. Your servants are being beaten and the fault is with your own people. And Pharaoh said, verse 17, lazy, that's what you are, lazy. That's why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work, you will not be given any straw, but you must produce your full quota of bricks. Things can only get worse. So far, so bad. But you need to notice a couple of things about this little passage. The first is that Pharaoh is very, very careful to put the blame for this situation on Moses 
and Aaron. You get that in verse 17. I will not get to give you any more straw. Get straw where you can find it. This is what Pharaoh says. And they beat the Israelites. And they appeal to Pharaoh, verse 15. And Pharaoh says, you want to go and sacrifice to the Lord because you're lazy. This is Moses' fault. This was his idea. And so Moses' mission has gone seriously pear-shaped. That verse there, verse 22, 23. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's brought trouble on this people and you have not rescued your people at all. This is serious, right? Because this is like a Christian today, someone who comes to faith today, puts their trust in Jesus, the Lord of the universe, the one who threw stars into space, who calls them by name, and then things get worse and not better. And then life is tougher and not easier. What on earth is going on? Moses can't understand it. What on earth is going on? And we get to the point where we can't understand it too. What's going on? There are two things that are going on. Here's the first. Pharaoh and the Egyptians are being judged. You get a picture when, when you talk about judgment of you know, God sitting on a throne and people appearing before him and God sort of pronounces a sentence. Judgment starts a long time before you get to the judgment seat of Christ. Judgment starts the first time you're presented with a decision where one way is good and one way is bad. One way is right and one way is wrong. And when you choose the wrong way, you pass judgment on yourself, actually. You do it again and again. Our lives are being judged throughout the whole of our lives. As again and again, we have the choice to do what's right, to do what's wrong, to do what's good, to do what's bad, to do what's wise, to do what's stupid. And we wind up creating the life that we choose. That's exactly what Pharaoh is doing. He's being given the opportunity to do the will of God. Joel talked about this last time. And he chooses not to. He's going to get that choice again. He chooses not to. And again, he chooses not to. And eventually his heart will be so hard that God will make it impossible for him to go in the opposite direction. God will harden his heart for him. God is giving him these choices again and again until eventually his behaviour patterns are so settled he cannot choose otherwise. I think that's true with every human being that lives. God speaks to the poor and the powerful in all kinds of ways, through people around us, through the books we read, through the movies we watch, through the heroes that we admire, through the songs that we sing, sometimes through bits of the Bible that we see, sometimes in a dream, sometimes through a Christian friend. And he nudges us and he digs us and he gives us the choice. But if we keep on choosing to do the wrong thing, if we keep on choosing to walk the opposite direction, then eventually we create the kind of person that simply cannot choose to do what is right. God hardens eventually 
Pharaoh's heart. But he's hardening a heart which is already hard-boiled because of the choices he keeps on making. So Pharaoh is being tested. Israel are going to Pharaoh as a test of whether or not Pharaoh will change. Pharaoh chooses not to. And in the end, he takes the consequences. We'll come to that in a few weeks. But the other thing that's happening is that Israel is, is being tested. And as Israel faces the, the increasing heat as a result of confronting Pharaoh, well, the question's being asked, are you going to trust me in this, Israel? Or are you just going to lose all hope? Are you going to trust me in this, Moses and Aaron, God's spokespeople? Or are you just going to lose all hope? God is testing the quality of their ability to trust him. And he'll do that to you and to me as well. Because in those tough times, in those times when we feel ourselves in a crucible, things are so hot, God is saying to us, trust me. And I will bring you through this. Now actually, why is he doing this? He's doing this not because he needs to know the quality of our faith. He doesn't need to test us to find that. He already knows it. He's doing it because I need to know the quality of my faith. I need to be tested so that I can see where I really stand, what I'm really like, who I really am. Like the, the, the guy who almost knocked me off my bike earlier this week. Just after a woman had almost knocked me off my bike at a roundabout. I started the day happy. The first almost collision made me a bit irritable. The second one made me furious and I'm so glad none of you were there to hear the mouthful that I gave him. And I came away afterwards thinking, oh, so that's what you really like. That's what you really like. And God will allow us to endure circumstances that expose to us what we're really like and those moments are really important. Those moments are life-changing. They can be history-changing. They can be family-changing. They can be relationship-changing. They are never, ever the result of God taking his eye off the ball. They are never, ever the result of God's love for us failing. They're to show us what we really need to do. That verse the kids are learning. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all that other stuff will be added to you as well. Make honouring God, hearing his word, worshipping him, the priority of your life and all the other stuff will slipstream in. It's when we take our eyes off trusting God that everything else tends to fall apart in a way that we can't control and it takes years to put it right. Things can only get worse. No, God is working at a deeper level to achieve something greater. So God speaks and reassures his people. This is the next bit. And if you read from chapter 6, verse 1, Now you will see that I'll do to Pharaoh because of my mighty hand. He will let them go because my mighty hand. He will drive them out of this country. He's going to drive you out. He's not going to hang on to you. And verse 2 down to verse 5, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob as God Almighty 
but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. These people knew me, but not like you. These people knew me personally, but you know me intimately. By my name, the Lord. You get the drift. And finally, he reminds Moses of their special relationship, the covenant that he, he has with them. And then he reminds Moses of his promises, repeating them on the screen. I'll take you as my own people, and I'll be your God. I'll bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give you, you as a possession. I am the Lord. These, these promises are amazing. That little chapter is amazing. They're powerful promises. They are poignant promises. They are personal promises and they didn't work. They did not work. Have a look at verse 12. And Moses said to the Lord, If the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me since I speak with faltering lips? In verse 9, verse, Moses reported this to the Israelites. Everything God has said. They didn't listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labour. It's not going well, is it? It really isn't going well. And I guess that for many of us, things are not going well right now. And for all of us, there'll be periods where things are not going well. And you read the promises of God and they just make it, don't make any sense. You look at the words and you think, well, yeah, I suppose they're true, but you don't feel that they're true. It's just not going well. And the thing I think that's just powerful about this is that the people of God, working under harsh conditions, really do not believe this. They did not listen to him, verse 9. But it's the leaders. It's Moses and Aaron, verse 12. They're not listening to me. Pharaoh's not listening to me. This is all going wrong. It's just this simple thing. Leaders doubt too. Leaders fail too. And I was reading a few years ago a book by an American pastor called Warren Wearsby. He said this. I think this is really important. Christian leaders are human beings made of dust, subject to the same forces that destroy the men and women they lead. For the same reason, many church members have the idea that their leaders are exempt from personal pressures and problems, or that they have a secret system for overcoming the difficulties of life and ministry. They do not. We don't. And neither do you. The tough times are the tough times. And nothing can change that. Except in the tough times, trusting the God that blessed you in the good times and holding on to him for all he's worth. Because he has a purpose. He has a plan. And at those moments in our lives when we cannot see the plan, we cannot see what's working out, hold on to him because he is holding on to you. In this time, all those years ago, 
and until fairly recently when we started using modern technology, when you wanted to make gold out of rock, you took some gold ore, just plain-looking, horrible-looking rocks, smashed them up in a crucible, and, and then you put the crucible into a furnace, closed the furnace, and heated it, and heated it, and heated it, until the rock melted and started to flow fluid in the crucible. You pull the crucible out, and what's on top is not gold, it's scum. And the goldsmith would take an instrument and scrape off the scum and discard it and put the crucible back into the fire again and heat the crucible and heat it and heat it. He'd take the crucible out again because more scum had flowed to the surface. He'd scrape it off and put it back in and heat it again and again until eventually he'd take the crucible out and there was no scum on the surface because he could see his own reflection in it. And when we go through times of the kind that Israel goes through now, we don't go through them saying like the atheist, well, everything's random, this is random, so nothing has any point to it. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be added to you. Trust him. He's heating you up so that he can scrape away the garbage and leave only gold. And at the end of the process, he look at you and see his own reflection looking back. And that's where we're headed. We're going to worship the Lord.